Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Archaeology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Newman, and today I'll be talking with Claudia Brittenham, an associate professor of art history at the University of Chicago. We'll be discussing her new book, Unseen Art, Making Vision and Power in Ancient Mesoamerica. Welcome to the show, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and just how you came to study the art of ancient Mesoamerica. Sure. I want to begin just by saying that I'm speaking to you from the traditional territories of the Council of the Three Fires, a confederacy of the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, and that Chicago continues to be a vibrant place of gathering for indigenous people from all over the world. Um, How did I come to study Mesoamerican art? Well, in retrospect, it looks like an inevitable path. I took a class with Mary Miller as an undergraduate, wrote my senior thesis with her on the um, Royal Palace at Tikal, and then after a few years hiatus, went back to study um, for my PhD with her. But in reality, during that period, I had no idea what I was doing. I really thought that I wanted, well, first I sort of stumbled into art history really late in my graduate career. It turned out, I started off as a linguistics major and then when it became clear I didn't really want to be a linguistics major, it turned out that I accumulated an entire art history major, just one or two classes each quarter as a kind of present to myself. But then I was really sure that what I was studying was African art. And I only ended up writing my senior thesis and traveling and doing research in Mexico because nobody was able to advise a thesis on African art that year. And then after after college, I worked as the um, curatorial assistant and then assistant curator at the Textile Museum in the Eastern Hemisphere Collection Department, working on African and Japanese and Central Asian textiles, suffered a lot of continental indecision, and only at, at, and really, like, honestly surprised myself um, when I woke up in the middle of the night one night and said, why don't I just study Mesoamerica rather than Africa or China or South Asia? And um, I haven't regretted it for a moment since. 
Well, I think there's many of us who are glad that you made that decision also. Um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to write this particular book on unseen art. It's a book that has a bunch of different origin points. And, you know, honestly, probably the first of them. Um, so back when I was at the Textile Museum, I talked myself onto a Silk Road Foundation tour to, or, or like research trip to the Buddhist caves at, um, at Mogao in, in Dunhuang, China. And um, these, these are these, these like rock cut caves um, that are incredibly dark to be in. And, um, and so, you know, so we'd walk in with, you know, like our headlamps and our notebooks and, you know, and, and the flashlights and, and it was really incredibly difficult to see these caves. And there's no evidence that anyone ever bought a torch inside to look at them. Um, we know because, you know, right after the Russian revolution, a bunch of soldiers took refuge and they brought torches in and you can see those marks in some caves, but not in the other caves. And it turns out that this is kind of a common problem, not just at Dunhuang, but also in Mesoamerica, in places like Bonampak, which is this um, building with these three rooms that are painted on every available surface. And once again, there's no evidence that anyone ever brought in light um, to look at these. We've thought that maybe people brought in, you know, used sheets or white sheets to reflect light into the rooms, kind of like a photographer's, you know, like those tinfoil things or something. But um, but once again, the, you know, these, these works of art that were really difficult to see in their original context. And there's this lovely article by Wu Hung, who's a scholar of Chinese art called What is Pianxiang? It's mostly about the relationship between text and image in, in Buddhist painting. But there's this throwaway observation at the beginning about how different it is to see one of these caves in a book than it would have been to have have stood in those caves and having stood in those caves, I, you know, and like re having read this not long afterwards, that really stuck with me. And so then when I was finishing writing my dissertation on the mural paintings of this small city in the center of Mexico called Tlaxcal or called Cagaxla, I cannot believe I have just failed to accurately represent the title of my dissertation. Um, one of the things that, that, that I came to understand was really significant about these paintings is that they were intentionally buried when they went out of use. So in, in contrast to other kinds of architecture at Kakashla, which were just sort of cut off wherever it was convenient and filled with stone rubble, the paintings had a layer of very fine, even possibly sifted earth placed in front of them before they were covered by new construction in a way that preserved them so that we can study them today. Except for one painting really late in the history of the site, where the fragments of, of, of the paint that had been taken off the walls were then mixed together with fine clay and then covered with earth, with ceramics around them, almost as if they were buried like a human body. And so thinking about these ways that painting continued to have meaning, even when it was no longer visible, um, and then thinking back to all of these other things that had been hard to see in their contexts was what set me on the path to write unseen art. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, well, then I guess let's get into Unseen Art and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the different parts of the book. Um, 
So in the introduction, you kind of set the stage for us with some key clarifications about the term art and what art was in Mesoamerica, often in contrast to our understanding of the term and our own experiences of art objects today. Uh, so can you kind of start by telling us a little bit more about those claims and kind of how you situate the book in relation to the, the, the Western idea of art? So the challenge, so I'm an art historian, right? So I have to say, like, I've got a lot invested in the idea of art and there are ways in which I really believe in it. But there are also ways in which I've really come to be aware, particularly with the help of um, Carolyn Dean, who, another art historian who works on the Inca, who's written this wonderful article called The Trouble with the Term Art. One of the things that I've become really aware of is the way that art is kind of a colonial category, right? It's invented in Europe. And if I ask you to picture a work of art, um, there's a good chance that the first thing that's going to pop into your mind is a European work. And it's probably something like a canvas painting that's, you know, meant to be displayed on a wall. Maybe it's a sculpture, but it's something that's, that's meant to be seen in the context of a museum because museums as a mode of display really come into being at the same time that our idea of art, the way we kind of understand it now, is being formalized. And this is also the moment when Europeans are colonizing and exploiting the rest of the world. And one of the things that happens then is that this category of art gets used as a tool in colonial situations, right? That in a way that, you know, things that are made in other parts of the world might be very nice, but they can really never quite measure up to the white supremacist glory of a painting that, you know, by some famous Italian master, right? And so that it's a category that has over, you know, over the last 50 years, or maybe 100 years, been expanded outwards and outwards to include not just things made in Europe, but things visually elaborated, elaborated things made all over the world. And as a tool, it creates a compare, you know, it creates a, a basis for comparison, a kind of cross-cultural dialogue. But at the same time, the deck is always stacked, right? So that those European style paintings come out on the top. And so one of the reasons that I got so interested in the question of unseen art is because there are these works in Mesoamerica that seem to us to fit really comfortably into the category of art, right? These, these incredibly gorgeous, beautifully elaborated, visually intense objects that could not have been seen very well in their original context, right? And, and, and that's from works that were intentionally buried, like the Kakashla murals, the dark rooms of the paintings of Bonapak, through these other kinds of examples that I consider in the, in the chapters of this book, things that were really never made to be seen well, the way that we might see them in a museum now. And so my hope in, in, in thinking about this class of objects was really precisely to examine that kind of tension between the European category of art that comes into being at the same time as the museum with certain modes of display and all of the visually elaborated things from all over the world, not and even from Europe before the early modern period, that weren't meant to be made and seen in the museum context, right? Because like art isn't a great mode for thinking about something like an altarpiece, right? Or a, a, a funerary, you know, Roman or Greek funerary art. Just, you know, like, I just used the word, right? You know, it's not, it's, but it's not, it's not exactly the context in which these works would have been experienced, just as it isn't precisely a comfortable way for talking about a lot of Mesoamerican objects. And so it was precisely that discomfort I wanted to think about in this book. 
Yeah. Um, and actually, maybe uh, this is a good moment to say we've we've kind of been talking about Mesoamerica and Mesoamerican art, uh, but maybe you could kind of briefly, you know, give a general sense of, of what that means, what kind of place, what kind of period we're talking about, and then uh, just quickly say a bit about the, the examples that you chose for this book, that you have kind of a range of Mesoamerican art that you cover. Right. Okay. So Mesoamerica, we define now as the region of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, um, before the Spanish invasion of 1521. So, you know, so, so really it's talking about a period from about 1500 BCE up until that, uh, up and up until 1521. So, so a span of almost 3000 years. And Mesoamerica is an incredibly sort of geographically and linguistically and culturally diverse region but it forms a kind of unity because people are talking to each other across languages, across cultures, sharing practices and beliefs, um, and sort of really in, in sort of super connected contact with their neighbors. So when I started writing on scene art, I had this vision that I was going to compile every example of everything that had been difficult to see at any moment in its life in all that 3,000 year span of Mesoamerican history. And it turned out that this was not actually a realistic expectation for a book, um, partly because that's just like a kind of overwhelming amount of research, but also because the ways that works of art become unseen can be really radically different. Some things are made not to be seen from soon after the moment of their creation. Other objects were made to be seen, but ended up unseen after a long history of, you know, and ended up recycled or concealed or, you know, buried upside down as, you know, after, you know either as a kind of honorific placement sometimes or as the result of, a, you know, of, of a battle and a kind of change of power. There are other objects that were meant to be situationally visible. So processional icons, things that, you know, and we can think about medieval European examples for this, right? Things that are often concealed and stored in darkness, um, which Bartolome de las Casas, a Dominican friar says, was done to show more reverence to objects so that they weren't always exposed to the gaze. Um, but these objects might then come out and be seen on particular occasions and then go back into darkness again. You can think about a book as something that's situationally seen or unseen, right? You're not always looking at all of the pages simultaneously. And then there are contexts like the Mesoamerican tomb. We often think about things being sealed in a tomb and then never looked at again. But we know that in Mesoamerica, in a lot of regions of Mesoamerica, people actually went back into tombs with some frequency, either to bury new ancestors or to conduct rituals with the bodies of, of, of ancestors who had long been buried. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about this kind of matrix of things, you know, that were intended to be unseen, th things that became unseen at different moments in their life cycles, and at the same time, different kinds of difficulties in seeing things, right? There are things that are stored in darkness, things that are physically inaccessible, things that you can see, but only from really far away in ways that you can can never work out details. And and so, so it ends up being a, like, maybe three or four dimensional matrix thinking about all of all of these different variables. And so in order to actually finally write a book, what I decided to do was limit myself to some of the most radical examples of things that were difficult to see in Mesoamerica, things that were intended from their moment of making to be difficult to see. And that's how I ended up with these three different chapters, one on the work of the Olmecs, this, so the civilization that thrives 
along the Gulf Coast of Mesoamerica in the first millennium BCE, thinking about these massive offerings is the word we use for them, these large configurations of different kinds of stones and colored clays and other precious materials that are buried within days or weeks of having been constructed. Then I look at Maya lintels. So on the Yucatan Peninsula and down into the Beten region, um, these, this is in, in, in made, objects made in the first millennium CE. And these aren't objects that were ever completely concealed. Well, except for some cases of re- recycling at places like Oshkintok, but mostly they were never able, you, there were things that you would never be able to see perfectly because they spanned the doorway. And so you'd always be looking up at them in this kind of difficult and uncomfortable position. And then the final chapter, I look at Aztec sculpture carved in the Valley of Mexico in the century before the Spanish invasion. And here I look at carvings on the undersides of sculptures. And some of these are things that like two or three people can pick up. And, you know, one of the the best parts of doing research for this book was going into museums all over the world and saying, you know, that very heavy chunk of rock over there, do you mind just like picking it up and letting me see what's on the underside of it? And um, so, so some of these could be moved by two, or th- by two or three people, but there are other objects that weigh several tons. And once they're in place, they're not going anywhere. And, um, and, and so that th- there would be no visual access to these elaborate carvings on the undersides. Now, it's very convenient that these, you know, that we, we've now spanned, you know, the three millennia of Mesoamerican history, um, looking at different regions. And in fact, you know, maybe the Aztecs, the Mayas and the Olmec are the three most charismatic of all Mesoamerican civilizations. And I have a slightly guilty conscience about that because um, there are a lot of other people in Mesoamerica besides the Aztecs, Mayas, and Olmecs. And, um, but it, those were the three examples where it was easiest to see sort of rich traditions that involve this kind of intentional concealment. There are other cases I'm thinking about these buried sculptures at the Zapotec site of Monte Alban, for example, where this group of, of carvings showing visitors from the central Mexican city of Teotihuacan end up placed against the earth, incorporated into a building with caches underneath them, telling us that they were you know, tremendously important even once they'd been concealed. But this seems to be really an isolated episode rather than these kinds of longer traditions that I'm exp- I, I'm, I explore in the chapters of the book. Great. Thank you. Um, well, maybe we can start... Uh by talking about the examples in more detail and and we'll just kind of work through them in the same order that they're in your book. Uh, So the first, again, the first chapter, which you call making deals with the Olmec civilization and with these massive buried offerings, especially at the site of La Venta, which as you said, is in um, today in Villahermosa in Mexico. So can you uh, tell us a little bit more about these massive offerings and specifically what unseen art was for the Olmec? Sure. I mean, so maybe one thing I should say before doing that is is the other thing that um, I discovered really late in the book is 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 that what well, was 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 partly maybe to say a couple of things about the method for studying unseen art, right? You know, so so maybe the first thing to say is it, it became clear to me that when you think about things that were difficult to see, um, and you think about questions of visual access or visibility, you also have to think about that in terms of visuality, which is to say how people understood the nature of seeing. And um, so, so that's one set of method, one set of methods. Another thing is to think about the entire life cycle of an object from the moment of its making, through the moment of, um, you know, through the moment of, you know, through moments of use and, you know, recycling, eventual disposition. 
And another is to think about who has access in those different moments. And um, I guess not really in that order, but I ended up thinking about these three big ideas, one about making, one about vision, and one about power. And each one of those ended up being a thematic of one of the chapters. So what's really striking about these Olmec massive offerings is the amount of labor that goes into making them. So we, so, and, and it's, it's important to say, so the site of Laventa is this, is this incredibly large, complex city. It's one of the earliest cities in Mesoamerica. But what we really know about it and what I ended up writing about is this tiny little um, courtyard at the very, very northern part of the site. And we know more about this than anywhere else at Laventa because it was extensively excavated by a team from the Smithsonian Institution Bureau of American Ethnology in, oh crap, am I going to get the years right? Um, I'm not. Um, in, 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 two, you know, in two seasons, one in the 1940s and the other one in 1952, um, at which point Laventa was about to become an active oil drilling field. And so a lot of that excavation was done um, with a bulldozer lent by um, Petro, Petroleos Mexicanos, um, or Pemex, the national um, oil drilling company. Um, and this was a, an incredibly intensive excavation and also an incredibly destructive excavation. And so what we have left of it are really primarily the textual descriptions and then sometimes photographs or drawings by these archeological teams. And um, so as they were stripping down the ceremonial court at the Northern part of complex A, they discovered um, these these two platforms right at the begin at, at the sort of Southern edge of this enclosure. These adobe brick platforms, and as they excavated into them, they found underneath them about mm, a meter or or two of red and white clay, and then a stone mosaic, and then underneath that, um, at least on one side, 28 layers of greenstone, something like a thousand tons of greenstone layered into colored clays, um, all of which had been brought from other places. And so there's this astonishing amount of energy and, and, and reflection invested in making this really complex configuration that couldn't be seen once it was buried. And um, the archaeologists called these massive offerings, I think basically because um, if you're left, you know, once once you reject the idea that this is um, somehow meant to be seen or somehow functional, um, well, it must be an offering. To whom? We don't really know. Um, what the sort of like what the relational logic of the offering is. We don't know those things either. Um, there's so much that we can't know about the Olmec in particular because we're at, you know, a 3,000 year remove or, you know, 2,500 year remove from alphabetic sources written after the Spanish invasion. There's writing at La Venta, but there's like one text from the site. We assume that there was a lot of other writing in, on books, but they just haven't survived. And so it's a place where, you know, really the the material evidence of the site itself, as we know it through archaeology, is what we have available. And so what I found myself really thinking about and trying to explain these massive offerings of Laventa was labor, the way that they were made, and what the experience of making them, which might have involved everybody in the community, might have been like. And then what the experience of seeing them, which, because um, you know, we look at them now in photographs or in visualizations or in videos, 
but none of those kinds of visual none of those kinds of visualizations would have been available to anyone at the, at the time at the time what people would have seen was making you know think about how a 3d printer prints one layer after another right every day people put in new materials and they covered the previous materials and so what people really had was a kind of mental conception of the labor that was being done and I think that that labor itself was tremendously important in creating the community. Everyone at Laventa was involved in one way or another. It's not that the, the amount of labor that these things required was staggering relative to the size of the community. And so I've thought a lot about the way that making these offerings, making these configurations was a way, um, you know, it, it, it was, it was, I found it really helpful to think about the notion of doings, which Severn Fowles, um, who's an archaeologist, anthropologist, uses to talk about Pueblo religion guided by um, Pueblo colleagues of his. Um, and, you know, where we want to separate out religion or ritual from other aspects of of human experience, um, doings really try to bring those things together. And so, so I think, you know, and I find that kind of understanding, um, a lot of Mesoamerican people, when we want to say religion or ritual, once again, they just talk about work. And so that the labor of constructing these things was symbolically important. Um, and it, it did symbolic work and it brought the community together in the process. And that's, I think what's really most important about these unseen objects. I'm sure there's like so much more I could say about Leventa, but I'm going to stop right there because um, I know we've got other chapters we need to talk about too. That's true. That's great. I was just going to say that I, I think it uh, the way you were describing uh, this process of making versus the process of seeing also kind of drives home a point that you make in the introduction about the, the way we view uh, these objects in museums today versus the way they would have been viewed in the past. And that, you know, you can go to see a reconstruction of a part of that offering at the Museo Nacional in Mexico City. But of course, you you get the, the kind of lowermost level with the, the mosaic. You don't ever get the clays or the, the green stone piled on top or the three-dimensionality of the object. So, it, yeah. Um, all right. <laughs> Well, let's move on to your second chapter. Uh, and so your second chapter is entitled Vision uh, and focuses on Maya lintels. And you mentioned that those are kind of the stone or hardwood beams that would have spanned the doorways of ancient Maya architecture. But um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the unseeing of Maya lintels. So, so maybe this is a good moment to say that each chapter of this book begins with the way that these objects are displayed in a museum today to really highlight that difference between the way that we look at things now and the way that we would have seen them in their original contexts. And, and in doing that, I also found myself thinking about some of the fictions that we have about vision in our own society, right? We tend to think of vision as something that's really instantaneous, right? You look and you see and immediately you understand everything. And ironically enough, um, this is an, this this has a real resonance with the 16th century account um, in, or excuse me, 17th century account in a Quiche Maya sacred text called the Popo Vu, which talks about a human sight right after the gods have created humans. And it says that people's sight was perfect and they could, they could see everything near and far. And just by looking, they would be able to understand things. <coughs> and the gods looked at the people that they had created and they said, what we have done is not good. 
it is not good that people should have this sight that is so that is so much like our own sight and understanding. And so they blurred human sight like breath on the face of a mirror so that they could only understand what was near, what was near to them. And they would have to travel to see and understand other things. Um, and so this is an account that's produced already in the colonial period. And although we sometimes use it as a model of what the ancient Mesoamerican people thought about sight, and I think there are parts of it, this idea of really, you know, perfect sight as a kind of godlike property that are really, um, that really are Mesoamerican. I also, I'm really, I'm really struck by that analogy between the way that we understand seeing and this, um, and something that the Popovu kind of cautions about the dangers of. Because this is nonsense, right? You know, it's extremely rare for us to actually, looking is not instantaneous, right? Looking and looking is not disembodied, right? We also some, often sometimes think of, you know, like seeing as something that just imprints itself on the brain. But of course it doesn't, right? I mean, at the most basic level, right? We have binocular vision or two, our eyes are moving in concert with each other and focusing. Um, and in order to understand a work, sometimes you have to look at it from near and from far, and if something is three-dimensional, you can't see it all in a single in a single view, right? Um, you might have to look, walk around it. You might have to look at it from different angles. You might have to look at it from different distances. All of which is to say that seeing is really durational. It's not instantaneous. And that we come into an understanding of what it is that we're seeing over time and in our bodies. So the other thing, you know, we tell is, is this idea that seeing is embodied. And so I think Maya lintels are a wonderful way of thinking about all of these things. Because if you go and you look at the lintels from Yashjilan Structure 23 in the British Museum today, they're framed on the wall. Um, they're hung, you know, sort of vertically as if they were paintings. They're spotlit just as if they were paintings. It kind of works, but it's not how they were meant to be seen, right? Originally, they would have been placed above your head. Um, and, you know, think about like you walk through a doorway and nobody ever really stops to look up and look at the underside of that lintel beam that keeps the doorway from falling down. But that's exactly the surface that the Maya, that Maya sculptors carved. And, um, and so there's no really good way that you can see a Maya lintel once it's been put up into that, into that, in, into that doorway, right? Um, if you look up, just directly up at it while you're standing, you're, you know, your body is blocking the light and you have to crane your neck and you can't see the totality. But then if you lie down on the floor in the doorway, which might not be socially encouraged, you're really too far away to see all of the fine details. And there's just this incredible detail of carving on some of these lintels. And we know that they were brightly painted, but they were brightly painted in ways that kind of like you just slap a coat of red paint over the background and the glyphs, for example. And so all of the details of the glyphs might actually end up being obscured by this thick coat of red paint rather than singled out and picked out by it. And so that there's a difference between what we want to see and sometimes in order to see what, what the first thing we'll do is, you know, take a photograph and then make a drawing of it so that you can see all of those details. And then that embodied, imperfect experience of seeing. But so one of the things that I think happens when you walk and you look at a lintel is that the people on the lintel also look back down at you. Um, because one of the other things that we know about Mesoamerica is that animacy is distributed differently in Mesoamerica than it is for us, right? We think that human beings um, have animacy and agency and are pretty skeptical about, um, you know, 
well, I mean, like my cat is on my lap now. And so I think she has both animacy and agency, but, um, but we're not so generous in, 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 in giving these, um, giving these attributes to other parts of the world. But we know that for, for, for Mesoamerican people, they believed that parts of the world around them were alive, right? Mountains, stars were capable of looking back at you. Um, ancestors were still agentive, um, even if they were no longer living the way that humans were. They, they, they were still they were still living in other ways and they were present. And images might share in the essence of the person represented in that image. And so if you have a portrait of a king living or dead on a lintel and you look up um, that king looks down on you. And it turns out that, that that dynamic of looking up and looking down is one that's really represented again and again in Maya art as a kind of dynamic of power, that, um, that looking up at someone sort of cements a kind of submission or an acceptance of authority, whereas looking down, what, when you, what you look at, what you survey, what's in your visual field, the Maya would call that what's in your ichnal or your ichonal. Um, and when something happens in a Maya text on the in the ichnal of somebody else, um, the person who's doing the looking is the person who's highest up in the hierarchy. It happens under their kind of control. Um, and so we see these dynamics play out all the time on Maya stile, and they happen in an embodied way on Maya lintels, so that you get kind of put in your place when you stop and you look up and in that moment, also, you experience a kind of really imperfect seeing that's different from the more powerful and maybe more godlike seeing of the ancestor or the ruler on the lintel who can look down at you. And so what, what I find really interesting about Maya lintels is first how they fit into architectural programs. You know, So, so we, we strip them out of the architectural programs to make them more like our idea of art and a painting. But they, they were meant originally to guide your movement through buildings. Um, and to enact these kinds of power dynamics. But then there's a kind of there's a kind of glorious futility to the Maya lintel because who looks up? Um, what was the last time that you looked up at a lintel in your own house? I give you this challenge as you listen to this podcast. And so there's never there's no sense. I mean, there's no way to look closely to sort of gaze the way that we, we think that people gaze in museums when a lintel is in place. But in fact, I don't think that's the only way that people see. I think we've thought a lot about the gaze and the kind of power dynamics of it, but not nearly enough about that of the glance, the kind of the way that you see something imperfectly out of the corner of your eye. And so then in the rest of the, this chapter, I end up thinking about other kinds of things that you might see imperfectly from lintels to, to Maya stile, which once again, we pour over for their details, but not everybody would have been able to get close enough to a stila to see these details as closely as we do now. And so to think about imperfect looking, casual looking, distracted looking as another really important way that people engage with art that we need to theorize and really imagine more fully ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, protein-plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals 
Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you've given us uh, these sort of unseeable uh, art, uh, you know, the buried art of the Olmecs, the imperfect seeing of the Maya lintels. And then in your third chapter about power, you look at these uh, sort of hidden carvings on the undersides of, of Aztec sculpture. So maybe you can tell us about a few of those examples. I know that chapter has many, many examples in it. So one of the other stories that's happening over the course of this book is is a story about increasing inequality and and increasing social, you know, social differentiation. And so this question of who could see and who couldn't see at Leventa, the entire community could see um, because everybody was involved in the making. And, um, you know, and, we, and I talk a little bit about the rise of inequality and sort of the rise of social stratification at Leventa and the way that strat- seeing gets more stratified over time. When we're in the Maya city-states, we're thinking about um, we're thinking about city-states, each of which might have had a divine king. So we're really looking at small little kingdoms, you know, sort of the size of the Greek city-states, more the classical Greek city-states, more or less. When we get to the Aztec world, we're talking about a completely different kind of power, which is an imperial power. In the last century before the Spanish invasion, the Aztec empire expanded to comprise most or a large part of what we now think of as Mesoamerica. And one of the real revelations for me in thinking about the carvings on the undersides of Aztec sculpture is that it wasn't just a habit that like all Aztec sculptors did, but in fact, something that was really particularly associated with the, with the, the imperial court of the Mexica, the people, the, the, the rulers of Mexico, Tenochtitlan, the capital city of the empire. And lots of different things were carved on their undersides. I have a database with a whole bunch of examples. <clears throat> and um, and in fact, the most common thing that's carved on the underside of an Aztec sculpture are the coils of a serpent. So that they're these kind of naturalistic sculptures, these coiled rattlesnakes, and they, the coils just keep on going on the underside, spiraling up. But then there are all sorts of other things. There are texts that are written on the undersides of some sculptures. There are images of different deities, particularly Caltecutli, the earth deity. Um, when I started, I thought that it was really simple. I thought that there were just images of the Earth deity, Tlaltecutli, on the underside, and I had all these beautiful theories about why that would be the case. And it's true that Tlaltecutli is on the underside of things like the Coatlicue, so this giant nine-foot-tall or eight-foot-tall carving of a decapitated female body um, wearing a, a skirt made out of interwoven snakes. Um, and it's those snakes um, that give us this name, Coatlicue, snakes her skirt. We don't really know what the sculpture was called originally. And it's got an image of Tlaltecutli, the earth deity in a male form, wearing um, attributes of the rain god Tlaloc on its underside. Tlaltecutli also occurs on the undersides of feathered serpents, on the undersides of boxes, and all sorts of different kinds of advocations. But as I started building this database, I discovered that there are all these other examples too, that there are examples of the name glyphs of um, 
of Aztec rulers, um, particularly Moctezuma, um, the ruler who who greeted the Spanish to his great um, you know, great eventual dismay. Um, and, and so they're all, and they're, they're these really sort of rich and playful programs. And so there wasn't any kind of one rule I could make in thinking about what lies on the underside of Aztec sculpture, except that what lies on the underside is always in dialogue with what lie, what, what is visible. And so that there's always this kind of meaningful relationship between this entire program, concealed and unconcealed. Um, but one of the things that's kind of fun about Aztec sculptures is that often what's on the surface seems really complete in and of itself. And so that also got me thinking about, well, who knows what? You know, who can look at an Aztec sculpture and say, oh, that's that's a that's a coiled, that's a coiled serpent. Great. Um, but now I've told you that there's a um there's a carving on the underside of it. And um and so now you know something and, and maybe that makes you think about the ways that our knowledge of art circulates through words and so, through speech as much as through sight. Um, and it turns out that if you look really closely at the edge of most of these coiled serpents, you can see just a tiny hint of the scales. And so you can verify that thing I told you. But then sometimes some of these coiled serpents also have images of glyphs or of deities underneath, and those you can never see. And so there are all these structures of knowledge concealed and you know mysteries within mysteries, all of which it seemed to me had a lot to do with the dynamics of power within the Mexica court. So one of the other things I did um, in writing this chapter was I mapped all of the examples of Aztec sculpture carved on their undersides that we knew the fine spots for. And it turns out with it, like one or two exceptions, they come from within a one or two kilometer radius of the Templo Mayor, the principal temple of the Aztec empire. And, um, and then thinking about the date of these objects, many of them have images of, um, many of them have name glyphs of um, Aztec kings associated with them. And so I became convinced that this is actually a really specifically Mexica practice and a really late practice that corresponds with the growth from kind of a sort of regional empire to a Mesoamerican empire and responds in some ways to reflections about what it's like to be part of um, what's like to be part of this new great system with all of these layers of hierarchy in it. And so maybe just one more thing to say about as these Aztec sculptures. One of the other things I realized is that a lot of the kinds of sculptures that are carved on their undersides are archaizing, which is to say that they're riffing on sculpture that was made earlier within Mesoamerican history, particularly at the site of Teotihuacan in central Mexico in the first millennium CE, or at the site of Tula, um, just a little bit north of the capital city of Tenochtitlan, um, between 900 and 1200. And so the, there's this way that, and, and none of those sculptures are carved on their undersides, as far as I know, but there's this way that in thinking about the past and in thinking about these great cities, these great empires that had risen and fallen, um, this also was part of the courtly culture that, in which Aztec artists started to think about carving the undersides of their own sculptures, perhaps imagining a future in which things would already be forgotten and their cities would be overturned and these sculptures would not, um, you know, they, they, you might need to carve the underside too, because that would be the thing that people encountered first. Wow, well, maybe uh, on that point about kind of looking to other civilizations and sort of thinking about, um, you know, what is learned in those kinds of encounters, 
uh, is there a way in which looking at these three different examples, kind of uh, looking at them together, kind of prompted you to think about each one in new ways? I mean, you're coming to them with the the idea of sort of thinking about the art that is unseen, but are there ways in which thinking more carefully or more closely about Leventa kind of showed you something new about uh, the Aztec sculptures or thinking about Maya lintels showed you something about uh, the buried offerings at Leventa? This is a fantastic question. And I'll, I'll have to, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that these, you know, I've worked on these case studies over a long time and kept on coming back to them. And so, so that they were really mutually informing each other. And, um, and in fact, I'll confess that one of the hardest parts of, of revising the book was, um, was separating out those thematics of making and vision and power because each one of them turns out to be really important in each one of those cases, right? And so, you know, because when can you see an Aztec sculpture that's carved on its underside? When can you really see a Maya lintel perfectly? It's in the workshop while it's being made, right? And so so that thinking about those dynamics of making and who could see and how that was so inclusive in the Maya or at, 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 at La Venta, but then so much more exclusive in, in a Maya court or in an Aztec court, that was really, um, that was helpful in sort of drawing out some of these distinctions. Thinking about the dynamics of vision and the way that vision gets represented. Um, in, in Olmec art, for example, we often see deities looking down um, at, in the kind of position that you would be looking down as you were looking down into the pit where these mosaic offerings were placed. Um, and yet that's really different from the way that looking down is 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 conceptualized as as a kind of proper as a kind of act in, enacted by rulers as well as by ancestors as well as by supernaturals in the Maya world. Um, when it came to Aztec dynamics of vision, you know, it was sort of a different story. That um, I, at first I'd really thought that you know there was something about the super, you know, divine sight or the the sort of sight and touch related to the earth deity Um, But I had to set that aside a little bit as it became obvious that there were so many things carved on the undersides of Aztec sculptures other than Tlaltecutli. And so there, what I became really interested in was a kind of denial of vision. And so this, um, and here I'm actually really indebted to my colleague, Barbara Mundy, for think, helping me think about the ways that people weren't allowed to look at the Mexica emperor. And we know this from accounts by, um, by Spanish invaders, in, including um, Bernal Diaz and, and Hernán Cortés, who talk about how um, it, you know, it was forbidden to look at, at the king or at the emperor and that, uh, that there would be an, a courtier holding a, a, a staff that would sort of strike the earth so that you would know that it was important to look away. And yet we know at the same time that the body of the Aztec king was designed to be dazzling, you know, wearing beautiful quetzal feathers that shimmered and, and, you know, and gold and, and just all this sort of magnificent ornament. And so there was always this kind of tension in the Maya world or in, in the Aztec world between being forbidden to look at this thing that was at this incredibly dazzling solar body that was just attracting your eye. And so thinking about those dynamics of vision and maybe how different they were than these, um, than these other dynamics earlier on. But then also, you know, there was another piece then, I think maybe, and this was maybe one of the most satisfying things, 
um, a lot of what I said about the sort of dazzling nature of the um, Aztec king's body could also be said to be true of Maya king's bodies. And yet when we think about the dynamics of Maya vision, there's also a kind of vulnerability that comes from being seen. When you think um, in the murals of Bonapak, so there's these beautifully painted rooms, for example, who's up in the most shadowed corners? It's the... Um, it's, it's the royal court, it's, it's the royal women, and in one case, perhaps the king as well. And they're all looking down on these gorgeously costumed chokes or princes who are wearing quetzal feathers and dancing. But then those, those, those beautiful young men become this kind of site of delectable visual, um, visual consumption, right? And they're, they're, they're made a little bit vulnerable by the fact that they're out on display for people to look at. And so thinking about that kind of dynamic of visual, um, of visibility and vulnerability also really helped shape the way that I was thinking about the about the Aztec king. And, you know, that that, that you know, you couldn't look at him because his sight was so powerful that it might encompass you and you meeting his eye might be too much for your, you know, your more less less powerful sight. But it also was protecting the king in some ways, too from having too many people, you know, from having too much vision directed at him. Well, maybe that's a good way to transition into the the point that you make in the conclusion of the um, of the book. And you've, you've brought this up a little bit in talking about the individual chapters. And as you say, they all kind of weave together uh, in terms of making vision and power. Um, but one of the things that you emphasize is that power is kind of always at play in using, viewing Mesoamerican art, both in the past uh, and in the present. So maybe you could sort of say a little bit more about what this book tells us, not just about how these objects were viewed in the past, but also kind of about our own ways of viewing these and other sorts of um, either ancient objects or even uh, contemporary art objects, if that applies. Yeah, so one of the things, um, so, so one of the things that, um, that I do in the end of the book is I think about esoteric languages and ways that, um, you know, so, so, so a lot of Mesoamerican elites talked about themselves and, and, and talked about the world in different ways than other, than other people, in ways that suggested they had a kind of different perception of the things around them. And, um, and, and that, that's, and that, you know, and it's in fact thinking about some of these kind of esoteric texts that helped um, crystallize some of these ideas about what having that visual access to these things that other people might not have visual access to, how that allowed elite people in Mesoamerica to claim particularly godlike site, particularly elite site, um, and therefore to, to, to kind of, you know, that these works of art, you know, they weren't just pretty works of art that you could play these kinds of, hey, I know this thing that you don't know kind of games with. They were works that, that solidified power. They made it concrete. Um, they, 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 you know, the, the fact that you might, that, you know, you, the king, know what's buried underneath that sculpture, but other people don't. Um, that lets you say, see, I'm an elite. I have properties of sight that you don't. Um, and therefore, my rule over you is justified. And so one of the things, I mean, I, like we write about art and politics all the time, but I think we still give, you know, one of the things that the art museum has done, right, is it's allowed us to think about art as this 
this this sphere of like nice things that you know that rich people do that don't have anything to do with the enactment of power whereas in fact the fact that it's the rich people who are doing it is in fact an enactment of power right and so that i think that it's really important um not just to say, oh, well, that art can be political, but to really think about, you know, how the dynamics of seeing themselves become engaged in politics. And so over the course of the book, I hope I illustrate the ways that that happens in these different Mesoamerican civilizations, but also have prompted people maybe to think a little bit about what the dynamics of our current modes of display are, right? Um, who feels comfortable going into a museum? Where are those museums located? Who can afford the price of, of, of admission? Who gets hassled by the guards when they enter into those spaces? Um, whose works have we taken? Um, whose works have we looted? Whose works have we extracted from places when they were not meant to be seen in order to encompass them within this concept of art and subject them to a kind of colonial gaze? And what does all of this then mean for that idea of art itself, for the practice of art history and any other discipline that's dependent on a kind of attentive looking. We have to be aware that that kind of looking has its own power dynamics and to, to always bear those questions of power and of access in mind when we look at things that we want to call art. Well, Claudia, this is a great book, and this has been a great conversation about the book. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to uh, wrap things up with one last question, which is, uh, what's your next project? What are you working on now? So my next book is called, well, right now I think it's called The Interconnected Mesoamerican World, but it might be called Mesoamerica Before Borders. And so the idea in thinking about this, the, the, the idea in, in this book is that Mesoamerica was always interconnected. People were multilingual, people were cosmopolitan. They, they walked from one end of Mesoamerica to another. We know that's not too far to walk because people do it all the time today. And yet, in the way that we talk about Mesoamerica, we talk first as if it was a bounded region, kind of like a nation state. And then we think about the territories within it as if they were nation states too, and they had borders. And we always express a kind of surprise when people cross those borders that we've drawn for them. But of course, the borders are a modern invention. The nation state is a modern invention. The idea that people have to stay put is a modern perversion. And so what by telling a story of a world that was much more fluid and interconnected, where people moved freely, I, I, I think that the stories that we tell about the past always shape the ways that we understand the present. And so I want to tell a story about a past that lets us imagine um, uh, maybe a different kind of future um, that feels incredibly urgent in um you know, as, as you know, as we encounter all of this kind of racist rhetoric about immigration right now. Well, that sounds like a very interesting project and another great book that we can look forward to. Uh, so, Claudia, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you about unseen art. So, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was really a delight. Like 